Welcome to Creating Your Happy Place, a podcast that explores what it takes to create your happy place and then empowers you to do whatever it takes to get happy at home. I'm Rebecca West, host of Creating Your Happy Place and author of the book, Happy Starts at Home, and I'm so glad you're here. Now today we're gonna chat with a gal whose experience of the world changed in the blink of an eye when she went from walking around on two legs to living her life from a wheelchair. Now, obviously this sudden change in her life made her acutely aware of the needs of folks using wheelchairs in their homes, not just functionally, but also aesthetically when she noticed that the majority of options to make homes accessible all seemed to be straight up ugly and very hospital-like. And it got her thinking, we can do better than this. So she combined her newfound perspective on life from a wheelchair with her lifelong passion for interior design and founded Blue Copper Design, elevating the world of adaptive design for everyone. I am delighted to welcome to the show today, living in a house on, in Queen Creek, Arizona, with her husband and two adorable dogs, interior designer, Megan Blau. Welcome to the show, Megan. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here today. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to have this conversation. I know we've been waiting a while to have it and I, I'm just going to dive right in. But before we dive right in, I think people are probably curious to know what happened that changed your life so suddenly. So can you share what happened? Yeah, sure. So I've been a wheelchair user for 12 years now, actually. I just passed my life day, which was the anniversary of my accident. So just like two days ago. So freshly into my 12th year. When I was 17, I was with some friends swimming and I dove into a pool, hit the bottom and broke my neck. So that incurred a spinal cord injury. And that is what left me paralyzed. So I am diagnosed, I guess, as a C8 quadriplegic. That means a lot of different things, like not all... People with spinal cord injuries on the same level are the same. Everyone has different function. Everyone has different everything. So, but if you're familiar with spinal cord injuries, I'm a C8 quad and it kind of gets you like in a ballpark, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that's the short and sweet version of it. (laughs) What a strange anniversary to celebrate because I mean, do you sell I mean, anniversaries are typically something one celebrates, but this is, this is not something you'd wish on any. No, I mean. It's definitely a tragedy to put it, you know, bluntly and it takes a lot of grieving and everything, but I do actually celebrate the day. Like growing up, I was a swimmer my whole life. I was a competitive swimmer. So I was always diving into pools and people, I get that question a lot where people are like, well, did you know it was shallow? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, (laughs) I did, but that wasn't abnormal for me to dive Mm -hmm. into a pool as deep as that one was. It just happened. And it happens a lot, I guess. I didn't know that until I became a part of the world. I think it happens a lot in Arizona too, just because it's so hot. We're always swimming. A lot more pools. Yeah. Yeah. A lot more pools, a lot of lakes, you know, things like that. So it is definitely more common, but I do choose to celebrate that day because you know, it's cheesy and cliche, but it made me who I am. But kind of beyond that, like, it's, I really felt like a huge sense of myself and a huge sense of purpose when that happened to me, like pretty immediately, which I think is a little bizarre, but I'm just rolling with it. And, you know, pretty much everything that I have in my life and every cool opportunity I've had is because I became paralyzed. So when you look at it from that point of view, yeah, I choose to celebrate it. I think that's really wonderful. I mean, every end is a beginning. Every beginning is an end. And we do get a choice of how we're going to look at that 
um, from both angles, while certainly not dismissing the tragedy of it and the, and the challenges I'm sure that you have gone through. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not rainbows and butterflies. It's definitely was a huge grieving process. And like, sometimes that will still like hit me at times and living with a disability is a completely different world that no one really, I mean, very few people, I think, prepare to live with a disability. In and how, how could you even conceive of what that would even look like right. until you're in it? Right. And so I'm curious, where were you living at the time of the accident and what physical obstacles did you notice first once you were mobile enough to take care of your own like daily life activities? Yeah, that's a good question. So I've lived in the Phoenix area my whole life. Basically, I was born in California, but I only spent a couple weeks there before my parents moved. So I don't really claim it, but I feel like I'm lying if I say I'm like born and raised here because that's not true. (laughs) So I was in Gilbert, Arizona, which is like right next to the city I live in now, just a suburb of Phoenix. And I would say, you know, when you go through this experience, depending on where you are and everything, your hospital stay can be different and different lengths and everything like that. But I was in, I was in the hospital for two months recovering. So, you know, everything was really cushy there. Like I had nurses (laughs) on the button and like, you know, so many visitors and everything was like set up for me. And I didn't really have to worry about like independent living there. I mean, obviously like two months after an injury like that is nothing. They say it really takes like years to fully kind of recover. So and that's just physically speaking. Yeah, just physically. It's, it changes every single part of your body, no matter pretty much where your injury level lies, like something has been changed. So that was a lot to go through, but my, the accessibility challenges were like immediate after the hospital. Cause you were living, you were only 17. Were you still living yes. with your parents? I was still living with my parents. I graduated high school two weeks before my accident. And so that was the summer after high school, before college. And I was going to go up to Flagstaff and go to Northern Arizona University, but that didn't, you know, and live on my own and everything that didn't end up happening. Mm-hmm. So I lived with my parents that whole next year. And it was just, it was immediate, like from you know, a couple weeks before you go home, they start talking about like, making your, you know, the doctors and the therapists, they're like making your home accessible. Like, how are you going to get home? Like, mm-hmm. how are you going to get into a car? And so, yeah, it was absolutely like from the second I left the hospital, I would say I, I ran into accessibility challenges. My parents had to modify their car super quickly in order for me to get into it. My, my like parents' house was a one story, which was nice, but the bathroom, like I couldn't get through the bathroom door. Right. And it was a newer home. I mean, it was a a newer home with like a quote wider doorway, Hmm. but we ended up having to remove the door and remove the door jam just to get that extra couple inches. And then they put Mm -hmm. a sliding door, I think if I remember eventually a while ago, (laughs) a while ago, I think there was a sliding door on there, but you know, even now, like if I were to have to use that bathroom, it would be difficult for me now that I've, you know, seen the other side and adapted it all the way. But I mean, while I was in the hospital, I had my family like preparing my bedroom for me. They ripped up the carpet, put in like a laminate flooring and kind of rearranged you know, my furniture and, and my family works in the furniture industry too. So that was a little helpful. I will say they're handy people and they have connections. So, but it was a scramble. It was definitely a scramble the whole time I lived there. It was not, you know, we never really thought about it, I guess. Like it just, it worked and that was it. 
if that makes sense. Like we mm-hmm. never really thought about expanding on making it work better. Yeah, you're kind of in survival mode in those yeah. first years, I'm, I'm assuming. Yes. And I still did have a lot of help. So, you know, it was, I was pretty independent, but I had help when I, when I, where and when I needed it. So mm-hmm. it wasn't as big of an issue, but I would I say, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I don't know if you'll be able to answer this, but what you're describing, you know, as an interior designer myself, Mm -hmm. I help people and these projects are expensive. And so in people, in my case, are usually choosing to replace their flooring, not having to. In your case, this was, these weren't options. These had to happen. Are there support structures and networks for helping navigate just the cost of all these changes too? You know... I don't, ha- I mean, I can just speak anecdotally on that. Um, yes, to a degree, as in if you have a good community that's willing to donate time or materials, mm-hmm. or if you, I'm sure that there are organizations, you know, that do do home renovations at like a lower cost or a discounted cost. I know that the flooring that they had to do for my family, I think they got it at cost and then they had someone install it at no charge. So it's kind of just like good Samaritan community work from that was my experience. Mm -hmm. I would kind of like to know that answer. I haven't heard too much about it. I mean, the cost is definitely something that hinders a lot of people with disabilities because I mean, on top of like medical bills and all, like, it's just so unexpected and so tragic. And then you're like, what? I like, imagine the worst tragedy that your family has to go through and then remodeling your house in the middle of that, like ridiculous. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. And you know, the support, I guess, as far as like making things accessible that people have would be their doctors and their therapists, which again, you know, they're not all created equal and depending Mm -hmm. on where you are, you might not have a spinal cord injury specific therapist. I was lucky enough to have that. We have a center here in Arizona that really just deals with neuro conditions. So Mm -hmm. definitely a big, a big, I guess, issue for lack of a better term. And even if they are giving really good guidance on ways to make the home, the existing home more accessible, they probably aren't thinking about making it also beautiful, which was one of your big concerns when you started your own interior design company. So, I mean, obviously I'm assuming in those first years, it's all, all hands on deck. We just got to make this work. And you're not that concerned about making it beautiful, but once you settle into the lifestyle, you'd like to live a lovely life again. Mm -hmm. And what did you find? So, you know, I had different situations every time I moved. So after I was with my parents, I went into the dorm and went, had like a handicap accessible dorm at ASU, Arizona State here in like Tempe, and then moved from that to like an off-campus slash on-campus apartment situation. And, you know, once again, they worked. I wasn't super concerned. I mean, I was concerned as like a girl decorating her dorm room, yeah. but I was not really concerned more than that. I was really happy and like felt really grateful that I had a roll-in shower and like an ADA compliant bathroom because that wasn't what I had. So I was mm-hmm. really, you know, excited about that. It made my life super easy. And it wasn't until I started really thinking about the design part on a higher level until I was ready to buy my first home. So sure. yeah, so I was just graduated college 
had to move out of my on-campus, off-campus apartment. And I was with my boyfriend, who's my husband now at the time. And, you know, we were planning on moving in together because we were together for two years at that point. And it was a hard thing trying to find a handicap accessible apartment. Like I did not, like one that wasn't attached to a university. I wasn't really aware of that whole process until I was in it. And they have waiting lists like for Mm -hmm. years for the very few ADA compliant rooms that they have in, a car- in apartment complexes. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I need a place like in two months. I must have, I should have yeah. planned for this. I don't know. Like, so, <laughs> but you didn't know to plan for yeah, it. I didn't even know. I didn't even think it was that hard because to be honest, like the university life was really accommodating for my right. experience. I know that might not be everyone's, but that was my experience. It was pretty easy and whatever. So when, yeah, I was like, you know what, maybe it's time to look into purchasing a home. Like, I don't know if we can do that, but let's see if we can. And we got approved and we went on our way and found a home. And I knew on that journey, I was like, I know that any home we find is going to have to be renovated, at least the bathroom, most likely the kitchen in order for it to work. And that was the case. And so when we purchased our first home, that was when I really started thinking about, you know, I know I'm not going to be in this home forever, like maybe just a few years. And I resale value was really important to me at that Mm -hmm. time. I didn't want to pigeonhole you know, my clientele, which is actually, I've changed my opinion on that. If we can talk about that later, but I definitely want to. Yeah. I mean, when I was 21 years old, I just, I don't know. I wasn't, I was thinking differently, but one of those thoughts, I was like, this is my house. Like I want it to reflect me. And there has to be a way for this to not look like a wheelchair person lives here for lack of a better term, or just that this home was designed for only a wheelchair in mind and to combine the beauty and function. That was really that was really it and take like the hospital grade out of it. Cause that's what, you know, I went from a bathroom that didn't function to a bathroom that did function, but kind of felt like a hospital. And then I was like, wait a minute, like, let's try to, let's try to not make this a hospital. Let's make it a home. Right. Yeah. And I'm curious, cause uh, you know, first of all, whenever I have an interview like this, I like to make sure that I'm using my terminology correctly. So if I say anything that is untoward, please correct me so that myself and the listeners can hear. But I, your husband, I believe is able-bodied and is that an appropriate term to use? Yeah, I use that all the time, yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> so when you were, th- you, you would be creating this home for you and for him, which would be the same if you had like a really short person and a really tall person in a relationship, <laughs> what challenges did you face or what compromises did you make to make sure that it was accommodating both of you? That's a great question. You know, I wanted, so my husband is six, four. So not only able-bodied, he's really, really (laughs) tall (laughs) and he's a pretty big guy. So yeah, we have a big height difference there. I wanted, so with not having my home or look like a hospital, it, first of all, I wanted it to feel like our home, but like most girlfriends or wives, I, you know, I took over the design. I didn't really ask him too much about like colors and materials and that's okay because I I, after it was all done after the renovation was done he was like you know there were some times where I was like I don't know what you're doing here like I would not do it but then he was like but when it was done like it all makes sense so he's like I'm not gonna question you anymore I'm like okay thanks function wise though I mean it did more center around me to be quite honest I would say for the bathroom 
we did double like a double shower system and I did customize like his shower head height and my shower head height, his handheld and his like shower niches, everything like that. But as far as the kitchen, you know, I really wanted most things that were really important or things that we used every day for me to use or for me to be able to use and reach, you know, without having to ask him. And we, you know, my favorite tip for that is to use drawers. So whether that's in the bathroom or the kitchen or anywhere, like the drawers just were such a great solution for that. We put drawers everywhere in the kitchen. We had no doors because that was seemed to be the, well, it was definitely the easiest for me, but it was also the easiest for my husband because before the kitchen renovation, we just had the typical doors with the two shelves on the bottom, but that's where all of our plates and glasses were. So if you can imagine my husband, like he's six, four, basically bending to the ground. And peering into a cabinet. So that would be the biggest, the biggest ones that, you know, that did end up working out for both of us. But I kind of, I will say, I kind of took the lead. I'm like, does it work for me? Yes. And then it was like, does it work for him? Oh yeah, that does. So then it was a winner. (laughs) Yeah. And to be fair, he can crouch down and stand up and he has options. He can, but you know, so we don't have that first home anymore. We're into our second home together. And I did finally went over the kitchen renovation. We were living with the old kitchen for a while. It was hard for me, but we were saving up for it. And like, he was breaking a lot of things, like reaching down to put things away. And after breaking like a stack of plates, he's like, all right, that's it. We can't live this way anymore. I'm like, no, we're like going to spend all of our renovation money on new dishes. So (laughs) yeah, so we did the same, like a little bit different, but we implemented drawers in a different way. And it's, it's been perfect. So I'm so curious. I'm trying to figure out the mechanics that went into him breaking all of those dishes. Was it like he would just miss the, like hit hit the counter instead of the hole? Yeah. I don't know. It was just bending down with all of the things in his hands. Like, cause this one that we had didn't have that second shelf. Like it was very builder basic. So it was like just the bottom shelf. Mm, And it was mm -hmm. just, I don't know. It was just a lot. (laughs) It was kind of bizarre to have your cups like down on the floor. I don't know. Sure. You know, it's just, it is it doesn't need to be that way. (laughs) So yeah, drawers have been such a lifesaver for both able-bodied and for me. And we did, you know, we did a lot of quirky things in that first house too. As well, we all, all interior designers experiment on themselves. That's how we get good in the first place is by making all the mistakes on our own homes. Yes. Tons of mistakes the first time. I mean, I didn't call my, I didn't refer to myself or think of myself as an interior designer then. It wasn't until about halfway through, I was like, wait a minute, this is a job. Like I was obsessed <laughs> with HGTV, you know, that's, that was a, very inspiring for me. And I was like, I'm doing what they're doing. Like, I should look into seeing if this is legal, what I'm doing <laughs> or like <laughs> what career this is. Cause I should explore this. So that was a great yeah. I'm curious because within interior design, there are also this furnishings and remodeling, right? So I think a lot of us think of universal design, we think of remodeling and accessible sinks and and things like that. But how much of a role does the furnishings you choose play in creating universal design as well? Yeah, that's an absolute huge component that I think gets a little bit overlooked because you do think of, you know, wheelchair design as kitchens, bathrooms, and that's, you know, there's no furniture in there, that's renovations. But what I... I pay attention to much more detail, I think, in furnishing and furniture than the average person. And with ADA design, adaptable design, universal design, there's a lot of different terms for similar things. They're all a little bit different, but 
those typically have, some of them have like stricter guidelines than the others, but it really depends on the person for what furniture is needed. So some people, you know, they don't really have to pay as much of attention because their transfers are good or their wheelchair is at the height of quote, normal heighted furniture, which that's not a thing, but you know, <laughs> furniture, but others, like if you're in a power chair, you're going to sit much higher than if you're in a manual chair or aging in place is such a good representation. That's really relatable for a lot of people. Cause a lot of people have parents or grandparents or family or friends who are getting older and their bodies mm-hmm. aren't working the same. And we all know if you have the restoration hardware cloud couch, like grandpa's going to have a hard time getting out of it. <laughs> he's, never, he's not getting out of he's it. Probably that's, not. That's Someone's going to be... have to hoist him out of there. So <laughs> those kinds of, you know, those kinds of thoughts is what I put into furniture. And, you know, sometimes they get lucky with, you know, pre-made wholesale things that are on the market, but I do also work with a custom upholster here in town to do most of my sofas and chairs and things for, for mm-hmm. all my clients. Cause it's just the way I prefer to do it, but especially my adaptive clients, cause I can really get it down to the micro, you know, to the half inch basically, and also choose the fill. Cause that's also like for sofas and chairs, that's always really important. If you want that, that firmness. firmness. About. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I prefer firmness. Most of my clients have performed preferred firmness. There's a few that don't and that's okay. Everyone has their reasons. So it's, it's definitely a different lens, I guess, to put on the furniture world. Yeah. Because I think as, as an interior designer, but one that I will admit, I am not well-versed. I'm not certified in any of these, what we call specialty areas. Mm -hmm. That's a whole nother conversation as to whether or not it should be specialty, but you know, you might think about the aisles. You might think about the fact that the chair should be sturdy, but can you think about the fact that the person needs to be able to get out of the chair as well? And then as you were kind of alluding to, there's a lot of different physical realities. Some I'm assuming some people just stay in their wheelchair at all times. Some people do a lot of transfers in and out of the chair and getting to know the actual physical habits of each person is going to be really important to the right solutions. Yes, exactly. You nailed it with that. And, you know, what side do they like to transfer on? Are they always going to have a caregiver transferring them? Cause then we might have more leeway. Like what, what kind of furniture, what, like, where are you going to transfer? Like me personally, I don't transfer onto my dining chairs to eat. Like I just stay in my wheelchair, but I have friends that do like, they want the mm. option to transfer into a dining chair or a bar stool or counter stool or, you know, things like that, where I don't really have to be concerned with that because even if it's the most transferable, comfortable thing, like I'd rather stay in my wheelchair. So it's knowing all of those little nuances of my clients and of just specific people in general, and then planning accordingly. So, so you alluded a second ago to, there's a couple different categories within this conversation. So do we want to take a second to define universal design and all these different labels? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think the most common one that people have heard of is ADA compliant, ADA design, Americans with the Disabilities Act. That has a really, probably the most clear set of guidelines that you can just Google anywhere. That is the five foot turning radius. That is doors being in hallways being at least 36 inches wide. There's ramp ratios. There's a lot of commercial compliances that, you know, Mm -hmm. restaurants, commercial buildings have to go through. A lot of people are familiar with that, you know, easy to look up, easy to implement. The next one, I guess below that, what I would call adaptive or accessible design, to me, that doesn't really have 
definition, meaning that it doesn't have guidelines. Like that is what I, that's what I call that I offer to my clients because it's really just looking at a person's individual needs and then planning accordingly. So there's Mm -hmm. not any like your table should be 32 inches high. Like there's none of that with adaptable design. Like it's more about the questions you're asking rather than the prescription because it can't be prescriptive because it's personalized. It's personalized, completely individualized. I mean, whether that's for an able-bodied person or a person with a disability, it's just completely personalized or both. And, you know, differentiating between those two has been a really, really big part of my business. And that's kind of also what catapulted me because my first experience with the renovation contractors and subcontractors were really familiar with ADA design and they kept trying to push my house into those guidelines and it just Mm -hmm. didn't need what they specified. And it would have been really hard for my house to meet ADA guidelines. And I was like, it's just not necessary. And it would have been more expensive and more time and more everything. So I really just had to be like, no, listen to me. Stop the Google. I mean, it's, (laughs) yeah, it's a great reference. And, you know, in some, in some places I will default to the ADA design for my design plans, but not all the time. So those are those two. And then the most exciting one I would say would be called universal design. And that one has a very vague definition and I should actually probably get like the official one and we can put it in your show notes or something. Um, but it basically means that a design that is the most well-equipped for the most people. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much it. So there's a lot of interpretation, but I feel like the best example of universal design versus like ADA design. So let's say a building is ADA compliant. It has a set of stairs up to an entrance and the next to it, it has a ramp. Great. ADA, you know, checked that box, but universal design wouldn't have stairs or wouldn't have a ramp at all. It's the entrances into most grocery stores that we're used to where it's just completely flat with no threshold. Mm -hmm. So some people like you can't just throw a ramp somewhere and just call it a day. Some people have a hard time getting up and down the ramps. And then imagine if you're going grocery shopping or have something on your lap and you have to push uphill or downhill, or you have a stroller, like there's a lot of different instances where even a ramp is an obstacle. So it eliminates yeah. as many obstacles as possible with universal design. I'm really excited to have that be more explored by, you know, legislation and designers and just kind of the world in general, because I think that that is where like the true innovation is right now. Well, and I know that part of the conversation there is making sure that there's nobody who feels stigmatized mm-hmm. or outside of the norm, right? So we're all just using the same entrance, right? Not, you know, not having your entrance and my entrance, which further segments us. Yes. Completely like as inclusive as possible. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of, you know, a lot of different examples, but I feel like that one's the most, the most clear cut, even like homes. I feel like homes aren't really in that universal design category right now because they don't need Mm -hmm. to be fitted for every kind of person with every kind of need. So I really have narrowed down to, you know, with my clients in a residential setting, I've narrowed down to more adaptive design because I just want to know what your personal needs and what your personal goals are for you, your family, and your guests that are going to be at your home. So, yeah. Are there certain principles that you find yourself folding into every design? Just, they've just become the norm for you? Yeah. If, 
if we're doing a renovation, I will push anybody and everyone to have a roll-in shower, at least in one area of their home. I just, it opens up so many doors for resale, even if you don't need it. Like there's just so many instances where you might need it or a family member or a friend might need that feature. Like if you have mm-hmm. knee surgery, I mean, like I could go on. So we, we don't need to get in specifics. I can go on <laughs> with all of it. And that kind a of- A roll-in shower is yeah, big thing. Yeah, a roll-in shower is key. Like if I'm going to do a bathroom renovation, I will not do it unless we're going to put in a roll-in shower somewhere. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty much, that's like a line for me. So whether you're able-bodied or not, and plus it's luxurious, like- it's a good design. It's a good design plan. We can do really fun things with tile and glass applications or no glass or pony walls, or, you know, I feel like I can be really creative with that. There's only been if even if a contractor tells me he can't drill down into the slab, I've figured out ways to build up slabs then to build them back down. So it's still- You read my mind wondering. (laughs) Yeah, because I had to do that in my house. I have a post-tension slab and I could not find a graph. I was like, just drill it. It's okay. No, it wasn't okay. The contractor's like, I'm not doing it. And I was like, all right. So he's like, you're gonna have to build it up. And I was like, I can't build it up. Well, we figured out a way we built it up and then built it back down. So, and it's zero entry. It's zero entry. So yeah, that, that would be like a signature thing for sure. I would say. Yeah. And then going back to when we can't remodel, you know, cause I, I it, it was really interesting when you were talking about how it was really hard to find an accessible apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's top of my mind right now because finding an apartment at all, no matter what your physicality is right now, is really, really, really hard. Mm-hmm. So assuming somebody does find a place to rent and it has some of the things they need, what, do you, what would you say to a renter to empower them to create the space that they need? Like what are some things that they can do to make a maybe not fully adapted space work better for them? Yeah, that is a really good question. So I would look into varying medical equipment. So for bathrooms, like we were talking about, there's a lot of different kinds of shower chairs and commode chairs, and they do make a bunch of different kinds for bathrooms that are not so accessible. So they have some that stick out from the tub a little bit so you can do a safe transfer and then like scoot over. They have sliding ones. So I find that a lot of my clients haven't explored that a lot, which Mm. there's a lot of different products on the market. Maybe one day I'll make them prettier. That's also a goal of mine because they're ugly and I hate like having a beautiful bathroom and then slapping one of those in, but it is what it is for now. So I would look at maybe changing your medical equipment or even getting some medical equipment because I can, you know, even me being a quadriplegic, like if I have the right equipment, I can transfer into a tub shower combo. It's just not my favorite, but that's okay. <laughs> I got nice. a little bougie over the years. <laughs> I did that for that. That was how my parents' house was. And when I travel, you know, a lot of the times that's how it is too. So there is that in the kitchen. I do find that kitchens can be kind of hard to adapt if they're not adaptable. I'm thinking of apartments with the like longer galley kitchens and things like that. So mm. I would say they do have a lot of accessible like reachers and things, but that sometimes is not the greatest. I would try to transfer things into a reachable height as much as possible. So whether that's putting things in the lower cabinets or getting like cute decorative bins, or maybe using, getting a storage unit or a storage cabinet or something in the dining room area, or just getting really creative with that so that everything looks intentional still, not Mm -hmm. just like 
everything's slapped on the counter because we don't have any room for it. That would be my biggest advice. But I have seen girls, like girls who I'm actually friends with, having to transfer from their wheelchair onto the countertop, which is a big transfer. Not everyone can do. Like, I definitely can't do that. That's a fair amount of upper body strength. It's, I'm a, lot, it's a lot. Like, it's amazing. But it's, I'm like, this is so unnecessary to get into their upper cabinets and like get a wine yeah. glass down. And I'm like, no, like move your wine glasses somewhere else. Like, yeah. So I would say that for renters, you know, if, if yeah. you can change your medical equipment and then just come up with really, you know, really creative ways to, for storage solutions that are where you can reach it, even if you have to move things out of the kitchen a little bit. Sure. Mm -hmm. And then I'm think I'm assuming that when people, you know, especially if you have a friend who's gone from being a walking person to being wheelchair bound, they still want to spend time with that person, mm -hmm. but it suddenly feels complicated. Yeah. Right. So with people who are like, you know, this friendship is really important to me. I want to invite them over to my house, but I either, either there's no access, which is an entirely different conversation, mm -hmm. or there is access. What are some small things that somebody can do to say, you're still welcome in my space and, and accommodate that visitor? Is there anything that can be done? But yeah. So I always encourage people to get a portable ramp. You can get them on Amazon and a bunch hmm. of different lengths and widths, and then they usually fold up in half. So, and you can just store, it's almost like it, it's probably like less storage than a ladder nice. depending on your size. So if you're, if your friend has, you know, any worry about that, about getting in and out of your house, I mean, that's step one. So yeah. literally, <laughs> um, yeah, literally you can, it, those can go over some small steps or, you know, you can move it if you have like steps up to your doorway and then the threshold up to the doorway. So there are options with that. I always encourage people to invest in one of those. They're like a hundred dollars. Like it's not that big of an investment. And then the second part would be to maybe make a little bit of space in your furniture and maybe scoot your coffee table away from yourself. It depends on obviously your friend, if they want to transfer and get comfy on your couch or your chairs, or if they prefer to be in their wheelchair more, that's totally fine. But I always try to give 27 to 30 inches between a coffee table and a sofa, which I know is a lot. Usually in designers do like 16 to 18, I think is the norm, mm -hmm. but yeah, I would say just move it, like prepare your house a little bit so that someone feels comfortable transferring on the sofa, but it is hard. I mean, I've been into plenty of friends' houses where I can't use the bathroom. And so that really limits your stay. And it's not because of anything they can do. It's just because like, I physically can't get into the bathroom because the door is too small. So I think, I mean, besides those things, it would just be like really extending a sympathetic view to your friend as well being like, Hey, I just wanted to make sure, like, do you know the measurements of your wheelchair so that I can measure my doorways and see if this will work for you. And I encourage people to know the measurements of their wheelchair. You know, it's easy to measure, but once you measure it, like write it down somewhere, like right. on your phone or something. So that when people ask, you know, you could do that. And, and I, I have had friends that have opted for like first floor apartments or not two story homes because they want me to come over. And I find that to be really, really nice. <laughs> yeah. So maybe, you know, if you do have someone close to you, like maybe think about that a little bit, because yeah, if you ever wanted them to come to your house, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, you're, you're speaking to me very frankly, you know, these are just yeah. real, real aspects of your life. So I'm assuming that a part of this too, is just having the courage to ask your friend what their needs and preferences are like, Mm -hmm. as opposed to hide and be embarrassed and therefore 
get in the way of the friendship. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, as people with disabilities, we're, we talk about our disabilities a lot for a lot of different reasons. And for some people, it's easier than others. Like it, like I said, a lot of people have grief around why they have a disability. And so to constantly have to be, you know, have a little bit of bravery and courage all the time. And then to bring that up to friends, it's sometimes nicer if someone asks you most, you know, if you're coming from an empathetic, sympathetic place, I don't, I've never had a problem with any of my friends asking me questions about what I prefer because I know their intentions are, are always good. But it sometimes is so nice when someone else takes that first step and recognizes like, oh, you're my friend and you might have a little bit different needs than I do instead of kind of just glossing over that fact, because that has also happened for me personally. And I know a lot of my friends as well. So, yeah, absolutely. What do you, if there's anything, because you've shared so much already, but do you think there are certain rules in interior design that get in the way of universal design thinking? Ooh, such a good question. I find, so my experience with design, interior design, I went to, um, I went to ASU, like I said, and got my degree in something else and then decided, Hey, I really want to pursue interior design as a career and got my certificate in interior design. So I went through like a six month program for it. And I, what I mostly took away from that were all the rules. And then when I got into the real world, I was like, Oh, all these rules are meant to be broken. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I don't know. I mean, that's kind of a hard question because the interior design rules that I'm thinking of, I'm like, "Eh, just break them. Like they're not even really rules per se. Cause I've seen a lot. I've actually seen a lot of designers do really cool things that I'm like, that is accessible. Like I, and I'll save it instantly on Instagram or something. And I'm like, they didn't even mean to make that accessible, but like, that's a good idea for me. Like I've seen a lot lately of kitchen countertops where they kind of incorporate like a dining table into the Island. Mm-hmm. at table height, like at 30, 32 inches or so instead of the 36. And I'm like, oh, that would be so great as like a prep area. And the way that right. they did it makes it look super intentional and super natural without being like, this is for a person with a disability mm-hmm. <laughs> and can accommodate a person with a disability or an able-bodied person for chopping and things like that. Like, I wish I did that in my, my personal home. That's like something I've saved for my next, my personal next home or my personal or my, the next kitchen remodel. I get that's an adaptive client. I'm like dying to do that kind of trend. So I I don't know. I I don't really have a good answer for that. (laughs) But you brought up a really great solution as as a result of the question. So I think we succeeded there. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, There's just, I don't know. I don't really think of rules with interior design. Sometimes I look for guidelines, but I try, I try really hard to get my mind out of the rules. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a question for you relating to the work you do as a professional interior designer. Now, I'm pretty sure that you hinted to the fact that you work with both able-bodied and people in other circumstances all, all across the, do you approach, you know, is it different for you at all approaching somebody in a wheelchair versus a walker versus able-bodied is your process at all different no it's completely the same i would say the only difference is just the questions that i ask so on my questionnaire and in my like the things that i have written down i just have like a section for adaptive design questions and that is where i ask you know the dimensions of your wheelchair what kind of devices do you use like do you have multiple different kinds do you use a walker sometimes in a wheelchair sometimes or 
you know, what do you, what do you prefer? I ask what side they like to transfer on. I like to ask their caregiving situation. I want to know, like, do you, when you're sleeping, like, do you get up to use the bathroom or do you do your bathroom care while you're laying down? Cause like, mm-hmm. there's a lot of personal deep questions that, that come up. Yeah. I would say my tactics are the same. My design process on my end is the same. And what I deliver my clients is exactly the same. It's just kind of like a little section that I need to ask more questions on. Yeah, absolutely. And in your own home, what is something that makes you seriously happy and why? That's such a good question as well. So a lot of things in my home make me really happy. But we had one. Okay. We, so our house was very builder basic and I was that way on purpose. I was like, perfect. I'm going to take everything out. (laughs) One of the things that we took out was we had one of those cabinets in the hallway that for, I don't know what, just like one set of lower cabinets, like shoved into this little niche. And I was like, I hate this. I got to take this out. So we took it out. And now it's just like an open little like niche cutout. That's like probably four feet wide and like I don't know, two feet deep or something. And we did, I commissioned a carpenter to do some really like huge, like four inch chunky live edge shelves in there. I painted the wall behind it black. I got these like black magnetic boards that blend into the paint. And then that's where we keep all of our like travel souvenirs and mementos so when my my husband and I have traveled quite a bit and are you know (laughs) it's hard to take souvenirs from everywhere so we decided that magnets would be our thing and so that's what Mm -hmm. the magnetic boards are for I didn't want magnets all over my fridge because it would literally take up my whole fridge that's a lot and so (laughs) I made a little spot for it and that's just you know I like where it's right by my laundry room so every time I go do laundry I get to see like all the little memories that we've created. That's probably one of my favorite parts of my And home. it's right at your at the entry of your home. So it really sets the tone for what you guys enjoy and value together. Yep. Yep. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. I'm I think probably traveling while living in a wheelchair could be an entirely other conversation. Oh gosh. Yeah. I could have a whole podcast series about that. So right. <laughs> and I mean that is another like just to touch on the accessibility of that. Like I even this weekend I have been looking at doing a little vacation at the end of July to Lake Tahoe and we want to take our dogs and make a cute little whole road trip out of it and finding a place was really really difficult and I kind of forgot because we haven't traveled for the past year or so right (laughs) yeah I kind of forgot how difficult it could it can be if things don't work out like Airbnb forget about it they have they do have the like filters for accessibility Every single time I put in a roll and shower, I have zero options and in major big cities too. So that's a whole other thing. If you want to do vacation rentals and make them accessible, I promise you'll be booked up forever. And then if you, that's an interesting tip for our listeners. Yeah. Do that. And then if you make it cute, then it's like a double win, but it, it also goes to resale. I mean, a lot of people do buy homes for investment in, you know, Airbnb or VRBO or any of those kinds of sites, but also for resale. Like I, like I said before earlier, like I thought, oh, if I make my house wheelchair accessible, it's going to be like not resellable. Like no one's going to want it. And that's quite literally the opposite. There's such a shortage of housing for people with disabilities. It's insane like we I think we have like two percent of what America needs for disabled housing and that includes apartments and 
personal homes. So <laughs> like it's such a crisis and it's definitely apparent in a lot of different areas. It's apparent with hotels, it's apparent with apartments, it's apparent with vacation rentals and when you're searching for a home. So it is quite literally the opposite of not sellable. It will go in the faster than ever. So yeah, well, and, and hopefully because we of course got our aging populations right now, <laughs> hopefully in their wake, a lot more places will have been modified to be more friendly for aging in place and, and universal design, mm -hmm. um, because it is something that it, it really is universal. Any one of us could break a leg tomorrow and wish we had bathroom that was a little easier to use in our condition. Yes, exactly. I mean, the disability population, I've heard this before and I'll say it again to everyone is is the only minority group that anyone can become a part of at any time. And so I've also heard the argument, well, there's millions of people that are, are a part of that group and living ways that are not conducive to them. So it's, you know, on one hand, you have the empathy for the people who are already in this situation having to just kind of deal. And then the perspective of like, oh crap, like anyone, me or anybody I know or love could uh, be affected by a condition that really alters their physical life or their mental life yeah. and put them in a, a really vulnerable living situation. And I think if we thought of that more, we would design around that more yeah. as designers, as contractors, as architects, it's, it's a whole industry. Well, and, and I think thinking about maybe our parents and stuff helps make it a little bit more accessible to our own minds too. When you're describing having drawers in the kitchens, anybody who has less upper body strength shouldn't be taking anything heavy down from over top of their heads. Mm -hmm. So that automatically would help with that situation. Arthritis can make it very, very hard to just grab a doorknob. So having levers instead, it's a small design choice, but it can make a very big usability choice. Yes. Absolutely. And it can really prolong the life of your home. I mean, of how long you stay in your home and how often you have to renovate it. <laughs> so. Well, what would you like to leave folks with? <sighs> I mean, so much, but I would like to leave folks with really, if it's between two options or to really choose the more accessible one or implementing a little bit of accessibility into, into design plans in general. So whether that's with spacing of a bathroom, drawers in the kitchen, super, super functional for everyone, whether it's doing something cool and maybe having like a, a lower part in the kitchen and also just please put in a roll-in shower. <laughs> please put in a roll-in shower on the ground level. That would be great. I, I just find that when we've when we get into like homes that us as designers like Google over and aspire to design one day, like some of them have already these innate design features and it's, it kind of just puts your home into a class of luxury. So for me, it's a win-win. Everyone loves like the indoor out, like another example, the indoor outdoor from like the living room into the patio and it just mm -hmm. is your threshold and we use the same flooring inside and out to give it that cohesion, like luxurious also accessible, like double win. So kind of thinking, putting on that lens, Googling ADA design. You can also reach out to me. I, off, I do offer a service 
accessibility consulting that is open to homeowners and it's open to designers and contractors and architects, everyone, um, <laughs> to go over specific design plans for accessibility. So if you're, you know, wanting to- If they're going to Google, they should Google you. You can Google me, yes. <laughs> but I mean, ADA, we can Google, but if you're wanting to get a little bit more specific, you can definitely ask me about that too. So I, that was a lot to leave you with. <laughs> well, we can put a bow on it by saying- if folks are wanting to pursue some of those things, where can they find you? So you can find me on Instagram at bluecopper.design. Blue My website is bluecopper.design. Facebook, bluecopper.design. I will say I don't check it as often as Instagram. So Instagram is a better place to find me. And That's where also, I found you. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> and <laughs> we also have a Pinterest. So everything is bluecopper.design. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you, Rebecca. I'm really honored that you reached out to me to talk about this issue and just this realm of design. So thank you for having You're me. You're welcome. Well, it's just so important because, you know, you have chosen to see, to take something that happened to you, something tragic that happened to you and turn it into a positive thing for the world. And that's the kinds of things that we should all be shouting out and sharing. So thank you for the work you're doing for people in your situation as well. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Creating Your Happy Place and that you feel a little bit more encouraged and empowered to make your home your happy place. In addition to knowing that Megan is out there with Blue Copper Design as a resource for anyone who wants to explore functional and beautiful universal design, remember also that my book, Happy Starts at Home, is here as a resource for you, and it's full of exercises that are meant to help you figure out why your home isn't working for you based on your values and the goals you have for your life, and identify what needs to change. So whether you work with a designer or you do it yourself, I hope you make your home makes you seriously happy. Until next time.